I pray that um, the truth, these ancient truths would become so, so real and alive. Father, your word tells us that it is a living and active book. Uh, that Father, the words that we read are not simply history, but Father, are, are living truths that get inside of us and work in us and sanctify us and, and make us different kinds of people. So we pray for that. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would take the Word of God and transform the people of God for the glory of God. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Curveball. Keep you on your toes. Well, those are dirty. In 2014, I believe, there was a movie that came out uh, by the title of Birdman. Michael Keaton, the main actor in this movie, plays up a washed-up actor who is uh, trying to start his life over again after a series of failed acting roles. Uh, but his, his whole efforts are haunted by a voice in his head. It's the voice of the Birdman. The Birdman is a, is a superhero character that he made famous when he was young. And the voice in his head tells him a story about his life. It's a story of failure. It's a story of missed opportunities. And this voice, it taunts him with memories of what he was and what he is now, or what he could have been. The continuing question running through the film is quite simply this. Will he listen to that voice of failure that keeps haunting him, or will he dare to believe that he can flourish again? Many of us have that same exact voice in our heads, constantly reminding us of our failures and our missed opportunities. It's that voice that's in our head that says, you know, this is what you could have been, this is what you should have been. Oughts and shoulds and what ifs. You have that voice? But there's another voice that's ready to speak also truth into your life that if you'll let it speaks louder than the voice that is your own. It's the voice of the Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit, who reminds us of who we are in Christ, that changes everything. It changes our identity. It, it reminds us that we are of such value to God that He would send His one and only Son to give His life for us. There is a, a voice competition within many of us. And the question is, who shall we vote for? Who will we allow to win? Who will we listen to? Who will we put into our lives that represent one of these voices and allow them to speak to us? Well, today I want to talk to you about the subject of change. How do we change? Specifically, how does the virtue of delight uh, lead you into the kinds of deep changes that your heart desires? Now, change is an interesting uh, subject to take on for Baptists because Baptists are notoriously known as people who hate change which is hard to understand since everything, everything is always changing. That fact was uh, expressed by the early philosopher Heraclitus who famously said, a man never steps in the same river twice for it is not the same river and he is not the same man. The, the cultural philosophers of our day uh, usually come to us in a little bit of a, of a different kind of poetic voice. They're usually the, the musical artist of our day. 
But these two have sung about the common realities of change. You can make a great playlist from these songs. In fact, I did this week. I, I said, I'm going to make a playlist to write these ser this sermon by. What was on the playlist? Well, Bob Dylan, who told us the times, they are changing. Sam Cooke, who's saying the chain, a change is going to come. Cheryl Crow, change will do you good. The Scorpions, who encourage us to listen to the wind of change. There's a lot of other of those artists who are a lot more skeptical about the possibility of change. David Bowie told us that times may change me, but I can't change time. The Moody Blues saying nothing changes. And Coldplay saying we never change. Now some of these artists may be a little more optimistic and the others are pessimistic. I mean, that, that may be the case. I don't know all of them. But I think that probably what is more likely is that the issue is that they are both observing the same reality in the world observing themselves in the world and then writing about it. The fact is, is that we are constantly changing. At the same time, it seems that some things never change. It seems that both realities are happening simultaneously. The river, yes, the river may change and the man may have changed, but, but the man's experience of stepping in the river is exactly the same as always. It just seems the same, a different day, but the same old, same old, same old. Well, the Christian faith itself is, is built on the concept of change. If there is no change, then something is seriously wrong. Every aspect of the Christian faith is based on change. Jesus came into the world announcing some radical changes, right, from law to grace, that's huge, right? From the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Salvation itself starts with repentance, which literally means to change your mind, to change your direction. In Christ, we become new creations. That requires change. We are, we are metamorphed like a caterpillar into a butterfly. We go from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. That's radical change. Sanctification is the process of being changed into the image of God, which we lost at the fall. It is of crucifying our old self and being raised to walk a brand new life. The whole thing is based on change. We're moving towards a future, a new heavens. A new earth. Everything about this one is going to change. Man, I hope so. However, if we're being really, really honest with ourselves, if we speak into the light what most of us keep in the dark, when it comes to real heart-level change... The change that we know to be true about ourselves, well, it sometimes leave us, leaves us wondering if something might be wrong. If all of this change is supposed to happen, why do I feel like I'm not changing that much? What's wrong with me? And we silently wonder if Christianity really works. All this promised change. Was this change that's supposed to mark me, is supposed to be part of my faith, then, then why do I still struggle with the same temptations? Why do I still struggle with the same thoughts and the same sins year after year? Years of following Christ and I still have the same struggles. And so we've made commitments, promises, recommitments, New promises, 
just like a pattern. But we really mean it this time, Lord. This time I mean it. And yet we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again. Or, or, or maybe, you know, we, we change ourselves in some external way, right? Our, our faith is really more about external changes instead of inward changes, right? When we go to church, we, uh, we, we, we know now how to speak the, the Christian lingo, right? We got the language down. Uh, but deep down, deep down, there's this, this voice that speaks to us, that haunts us about our lack of genuine transformation. Well, today I want to give you one verse of Scripture that can literally change your life. And I mean that in the sense that if you take this one verse to heart, it can change you slowly from the inside out. Because one of the things you discover about true genuine spiritual change is that it's not some for some people it's radical i mean it is radical it's like from one day you're a different person than the next but for most of it's a really slow process well the verse i'm referring to that i want to basically put all of our attention in this morning is one verse psalm 37 and verse 4 it says this this is our passage for this morning why well, didn't make you stand for it Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's a verse we can memorize. We do it right now. All right, let's say it together. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Two, two big words there, delight and desire. Delight and desire. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I, I read this week that uh, Oprah Winfrey was on the Stephen uh, Colbert show, and Stephen asked her what her favorite Bible verse was, and she said Psalm 37 and verse 4, when she quoted it in the King James. She said, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of thy heart. When she said that, after she said that on the show, she said, well, what that says to me, which is always a red flag, what that says to me is that the Lord has this wide range within himself, compassion, love, forgiveness, kindness, so that if you delight yourself in those virtues, delight yourself in goodness, and he will then give you the desires of your heart. That's how she understood it. Then she said that what that means is that if you focus on being a force of good in the world, then good will come to you, which is also what we call karma. Thus for Oprah, this, this verse is sort of like a formula to do good in order to get good. Delight in the Lord and boom, out comes everything that your heart desires. Well, that's, that's not what David is saying here at all. It's not what the verse means at all. I, I pray that Oprah will someday know the true meaning of the verse because it is a thousand times greater than the way she understands it. Oh, it's such a wonderful verse. Delight yourself in the Lord. David's word for the Lord, if you notice, is all caps. L-O-R-D. All capital letters. Well, that means that the, the word there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the name God gave to Moses at the burning bush. The command is to delight ourselves not in the virtues that extend from God. It is to delight ourselves in Yahweh, in Him, in the God of Abraham, in the God of Moses, in the God of David, the God who is the Father of Jesus. It is in Him that we are commanded to delight in Him. 
Now, the Hebrew word for delight means to take pleasure in. It, it, it means to live in the enjoyment of something. Or, and this is my favorite definition of the word, it means to spend with enjoyment. To spend with enjoyment, right? Now, that last one gets me because I rarely ever enjoy spending money. I know, man, I'm cheap. I, I literally get anxious when, when I spend money on things that are not necessary, which is most everything. Now, the word David uses for delight here is, is instead of that, it's a picture of abundance. It, it, it's like being gifted with a shopping spree to go and purchase whatever you want. And to have fun doing it, right? It, it, it's the idea of spending house money. The abundance is God's never-ending wealth of his grace. And it's like, man, it just keeps coming. You can't, you can spin, 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 and it never runs dry. The well never runs dry. So it is to live with absolute freedom and joy and abandon to the cares of the world. It's that kind of a person who will have the most impact on the world because it's so different than the world. Delighting in God is more than singing a few upbeat choruses, uh, though that can be part of it. But, but it is to live. It's an ongoing reality. Uh, a 24-7 kind of thing. It is to live in the abundance of God's grace, knowing that it will never run out, and thus being free to enjoy God fully without limits. How's that sound? We are invited to delight in the Lord. This is often a, a very misunderstood verse. So before I, I, I really kind of unpack it I want to I want to clarify the verse's objective and to do that we have to differentiate between the desires of the heart and the desires of the flesh right the verse says delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart that's very important and so to delight in the Lord, to get the desires of our heart, this is a specific kind of desire. It is the desire for which our hearts were made for. If we read this verse through the desire of the flesh, it'll go something like this, which is a lot like how Oprah saw it. If I delight myself in the Lord, then he will give me what I want. It's a transaction. So if I desire to be wealthy or I desire to be happily married and have two kids and a house with a picket fence and a dog, right? If I desire to have my cancer completely healed, then the key to getting what I want is to delight in the Lord and then boom, presto, it's mine. But what the, the problem with that is is that God has now become a means to give me what I want so that I will be happy. God becomes a vending machine. I will insert some delight in you and then out will come what I really desire. The word for that is idolatry. This view makes God an accessory to idolatry. So obviously that's not what the psalmist is saying here. It would make no sense. Instead, what we have to see is that we, we, we must delight and desire, and those things basically create the, the same thing. Or, or we could say it like this, delight yourself in the Lord and your heart's desire will be satisfied because your heart was made to be satisfied by God. So the, the, the desire of the heart is a desire for God. Delight yourself in the Lord and then you will find him and your heart will be satisfied. 
That's the meaning of the verse. The desire of the heart is the desire for God. Right? To know Him, to be known by Him, to be loved and accepted by Him. And every single one of you and myself and every single person that you know, without exception, has that desire in them, whether they realize it or not. There are no exceptions. Now, most people, because they are not aware of it, they just simply channel that desire towards something else to try to satisfy the desire that they have. And that never works, right? As Augustine said, he loves thee too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. <laughs> That's good. So, so we try to fill our hearts with, with desires for God, but we try to do it for other, with other things, right? We're created things rather than the creator, with, with the gifts rather than the giver. And it just doesn't work for us. Those things were never meant or made to satisfy us. I watched a documentary this past week about Johnny Manziel. Anybody seen that? Where are the Aggies? My goodness. What? Oh, my goodness. Well, then you probably would have loved this documentary because <laughs> it didn't look Johnny look, look great. I watched this documentary about Johnny Manziel, and it really, honestly, it left me heartbroken because it was so clear from the documentary that he has spent his entire life, still is, by the way, trying to seek after that which ultimately satisfies. He sought it in fame and celebrity and money and drugs, alcohol, women. He was kind of the young Solomon uh, in a football uniform. But his heart's desire, desires, even to this day, uh, are yet to be satisfied. And so basically, he, 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 he blew his career. He got out of football. Uh, he, he didn't find satisfaction in football. Uh, he didn't find satisfaction in his money. Uh, he ended up getting out of the limelight because after he achieved everything that he thought would fulfill his heart, he came to this point where he realized, I'm the same, and I am so unhappy. And it was so evident. It was so evident. It's a sad story, and yet that sad story is being played out in millions and millions of lives in America. Uh, the desires of the flesh differ from person to person. Right? Your, your desires of, the, of your flesh may be different than mine, but the desires of the heart are the same for everyone. As again, as Augustine famously put it, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And it is precisely at this point that we find the key to real heart change. Right? Now we brought it full around. Now we're getting to the idea of how change happens. Real change comes at the point of our desires. If you want to change, it has to happen at the point of desire. Change isn't what you think. It's what you desire. That's why uh, the gospel is not just something that we need to be saved Right? It's something that we need to live by. Christians need the gospel, not just lost people. So the key to, to change um, is to satisfy the right desires and instead of using our, our willpower against sinful fleshly desires. Because that doesn't work. Right? That's why we can't change. The gospel is what we need to change. This is why uh, confrontation, if you try to, we, we, do, <laughs> we do this not only to ourselves, we do it to, to other people where we make it our, our desire, our design to change someone. We try to change a spouse, try to change a kid. And we go, hey, well, it, nothing works. 
Confrontation doesn't work. Guilt trips don't work. Threats don't work. Rational arguments. You ever had somebody and you're like going, man, it is so clear, it is so clear that you are, are, are thinking some dumb stuff, and I'm telling you that because it's so dumb, and all of a sudden they're just like digging in deeper into their dumb stuff. And you're just going, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's certainly why angry complaints and criticisms don't work at changing people. That's why the whole internet thing is, and social media is, 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 is a total goofball reality. No one's reading that stuff and going, oh, you know what, you're right. If anything, it just fortifies our resolve to not change. Try convincing someone in love that, you know, you should probably, you're young, you should keep your options open. Have you ever read Romeo and Juliet? Not going to work. Right? These negative strategies, they might work temporarily, but they do not work over the long haul. You know why? Because it is an attempt to change the behavior instead of changing the heart. Think about it, man. Have you ever, you ever gotten in a heated political debate with someone who hasn't these days? I think I, I got in one for about three hours uh, this, this past Friday. Right? Think about it. You get in these heated political debates and the person you're trying to con convince, do they ever, have you ever said, oh my goodness, I see your point. You're so right. Right? That never happens. That never happens. You know why? Because it, you, you're basically just digging in. Digging in. Right? Never happens. And I preach many sermons. I learned this a long, long time ago. So uh, just to show you that I don't do this anymore. But I used to think, all right, I'm preparing this sermon and I got somebody in mind. I got a specific person, and they're just in my mind the whole time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I used to do that. And guess what? And, man, I, I use the scriptures. I use airtight arguments. And to my shock, to my utter shock, right, I give the invitation. I'm thinking, oh, here comes the moment that you're going to come crying in repentance, and they just look like they're just even more hardened than they were before. It doesn't work. How about parenting? How, how many times have you said to your kids something along the lines of, how many times do I have to tell you to, and you can just fill in the blank. How many times do I have to tell you to not leave your milk glass on your nightstand? It stinks after a while. How many times do I have to tell you to not feed the dog chicken bones? How many times, you know, it just goes on and on and on. How many times? How many times? Why do you have to keep doing it? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We don't change. You know why? Because oughts and shoulds don't work. They don't work. They don't change the heart. And therefore, they don't change the heart's desires. And that's because oughts and shoulds are based on the law. The law. And the law can't change anybody at the heart level. It just can't do it. Why do we always seem to revert to the law... To, to change even ourselves or other people. Why do we do that when the law basically does two things to us? First, the purpose of the law is to accuse us. And accusing people, you know, that, that just kind of sets you up in defensive mode. It accuses us. The law doesn't exist to improve us, but to accuse us. So the law is like this plumb line from heaven. 
It, can make the, it, it can't make the walls straight, but it can only reveal how crooked they are. Second, the law doesn't just illuminate our sin. It actually intensifies it. Let me show you what I mean. Romans 5.20 The law came along to multiply the trespass. My sin is actually increased by the law. And then Romans 7, 7 and 8, we've got a specific example. Paul says, I would have not have known, I, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Well, that's what the law is good for. And so we want to change people with the law. And then we wonder why they don't change. In fact, it just seems like they're getting worse. The law can't change anyone. It only drives us into deeper, entrenched, sinful desires. Now apply that to ourselves, right? It's one thing to try to change other people, but now apply it to yourself. When, when, how many times have you sat down in yourself and said, I need to make some changes. I need to change some things. How many times have you done that? How many times have you done something, regretted it, swore you would never do it again, and then you do it again, and you go through the routine? It becomes a pattern of failure. The Christian life begins to feel like you're just running on a treadmill, but you're not getting anywhere, and you're just exhausted. And that inner voice keeps reminding you with the barrage of oughts and shoulds, and look at what you could be, but you're not. The other day I, I uh, was going through some boxes and I came across an old journal from several years back. I got like, like at least 50 of these things because I've always wanted to journal, right? Uh, and, and they're all the same, every single one of them. And for whatever reason, maybe because I just like, you know, it's embarrassing and, and I want to start fresh, I go buy a new one. But, but every single one of them, you know, two months max and then the rest of it's just blank pages, well, I don't just pick up and, you know, finish out the thing. I probably could have had, you know, out of those 50, I probably might have completed one by now. But I'm sitting there, and I pull this thing out, and, and, and I'm reading through it, and I'm just kind of shocked because I'm reading things that I wrote several years ago, and I'm going, I still, it sounds like I wrote that yesterday. I still struggle with the exact same things. I still think the same exact things. Why can't I do the things I, I don't want to do, and why do I keep doing the very things that I, I know I shouldn't do? Romans 7. How many promises have you made to God to be better and to do better only to not get any better, it seems. And we think to ourselves, man, I, I'm the same man stepping in the same river, the same sin over and over again. And the result of this is that uh, not a lot of us Christians uh, are, are freed up. There's a lot of Christians today who are walking around carrying a lot of shame. The same shame that Jesus died to get rid of. We judge ourselves under the law. Constantly we're judging ourselves under the law. Instead of applying the gospel to ourselves. Listen to that Romans 7 passage, uh, 18, 19, 24, and 25. I know that nothing, this is Paul, Paul, by the way. I know that, I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is what self-reflection does. In my flesh, for, for, for I have the desire to do what is right, 
But it doesn't seem like I have the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then just that frustration, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this ongoing treadmill? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He answers it. I think too many of, uh, of us Christians today, we don't believe in the gospel. We believe in the gospel. New word. What's the gospel? Well, we believe, we believe we're saved by grace, but then we return back to the law when it comes to our sanctification. So it's kind of the, the gospel and the law kind of all, all brought together. But spiritual maturity is not moving away from our need for grace. It's not like, thank you for the grace now that I'm saved, now I have to get myself together. It's not the way it works. But we have to grow deeper into grace. 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in, in what? The grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and Savior. Grow in grace. You don't move past it, you grow deeper into it. Tolly and Chavigian said, believe it or not, Christianity is not about good people getting better. If anything, it is the good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. Psalm 37.4 then is an invitation for us to get off the treadmill of trying to change ourselves and others through the law, through willpower. Let's, let's consider then how real change, according to the scriptures, how it really happens. How does it happen? Well, our passage has a condition and a promise. Delight yourself, and the Lord is the condition, and the promise is that he will give you the desire of your heart. Right? Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? What exactly does that mean? That's the all-important question. What it means is this, that I find God, in God, the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most pleasurable, the most delightful treasure that I could, I could never find anywhere else. And thus he produces in me a love for him more than anything else. Now here's, here's the rub. Uh, that's what it, uh, it means to delight in God, but here's the rub, right? We 21st century Christians have rarely understood this the way the saints of old did. See, we see God mostly as a means to an end rather than the end itself, right? God is, is the means to a better life, God is the means to the good life, a happy life, even eternal life. God is the means by which we get to heaven when we die. That's our gospel presentation. Want to go to heaven? Here's how you get there. God's your ticket. But the best thing God ever did for us was to make it possible that through Christ we might gain God. That's, that's the key, to have Him, to be in Him and He in us, right? God is life. God's the good life. Heaven is just the place that we get to go to be with God. He's, he's the point. He's the promise. He's the hope. So it's all about Him, right? I think sometimes, I think sometimes we treat God uh, to, to kind of give a, a rather crude illustration here. Uh, we treat God like we're spiritual gold diggers, right? Now, a gold digger is someone who marries for money, right? 
They don't love their spouse. They love what their spouse can give them. In fact, they, they, they're, they're just hoping that the spouse kicks the bucket. They don't say, man, I take you, I take you for richer and poorer, because that's not going to work. But they say, I take you for richer or richer. God makes me rich. Therefore, as long as he keeps providing, what if he makes you poor? What if he brings suffering and troubles and hardships your way? Then we go, oh, well, he didn't deliver. God makes me rich not by giving me worldly wealth, but by giving me himself. And if I have him, I have everything. And it doesn't matter the circumstances that, that I'm in the midst of because I have everything in him. And my expression of that reality is delighting in him. That's what it means, to delight in God. Listen to how uh, Augustine put it. Augustine, if you ever read Confessions, maybe you read it back in high school, Augustine struggled with uh, sexual addiction up until his mid-30s. Uh, how did he defeat that? How did he defeat that? We found greater and ultimate satisfaction ultimately in, in God than he did in sex. And, and he became so awestruck by, by him that it was like, I found something that, that's greater, more pleasurable. Listen to how he talks to God. By the way, the whole book of Confessions is a prayer. He says, you are ever active, yet always at rest. You gather all things to yourself, though you suffer no need. You grieve for wrong, but you suffer no pain. You can be angry and yet serene. Your works are varied, but your purpose is one and the same. You welcome those who come to you, and yet you never lost them. You are never in need yet you are glad to gain. You are never covetousness, yet you exact a return for your gifts. You release us from debts, yet you lose nothing thereby. You are my God. You are my life. You are my holy delight. But this is, an, is this enough to say to you? Can any man say enough when he speaks of you? Yet woe betide those who are silent about you. He's like going, you're so overwhelming to me that, that, that I don't have words. There's not enough words that I can come up with to express how I feel. But I tell you this, it's way worse to, to, to be silent. And what is he doing by expressing those words? He's delighting in God. And then now all of a sudden does God say, all right, now that you're delighting in me, here's this. No, he's saying, now that you're delighting in me, here's me. And every desire is met. So how can we cultivate that, right? Because it's one thing to go, man, okay, that sounds awesome, but how do I experience that because the truth of the matter is delighting in God like that, it's not natural, right? How, how, do we, how do we make that a reality in our lives? What can we do when we don't delight in God? I want to give you uh, these four things, uh, and, and this is the application, I guess you could say, and then we'll, we'll be done. First thing is this. Ask God for delight. Ask for delight. Man, what a prayer, right? You think God's going to answer that prayer? Oh, God, grant it that I might delight in you. Take away the blinders that keep me from seeing you in all of your glory and all of your splendor so that I might desire nothing more than you. The fact of the matter is, is it's only by the Holy Spirit that we're ever going to be able to do this. Right? I, I can only delight in God 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no silver bullet. I must earnestly seek the filling of the Holy Spirit through prayer in order that I might delight in God. What's the fruit of the Spirit? One of them is joy. Delight. Lord, here's a prayer. Here's a prayer. I've been praying this all week. Lord, make me the happiest I could ever hope to be. And give me what my heart was made to desire. At first you hear that and you go, well, that sounds kind of selfish. Well, maybe the happiest I could ever hope to be and give me what my heart was made to desire. You know why that is never a selfish prayer? Ever? Because God is the only one who can be the answer to that prayer. God, make me the happiest I could ever be. And God answers that by saying, well, the happiest you could ever be is not in wealth, and it's not to have all your problems fixed, and not to have, you know, this everything that you dream about in life. No, the happiest you could ever be is to be profoundly in a deep, loving relationship with me. So ask God for delight. Secondly, delight in God's delight in you. Right? Here's the thing. You cannot delight in a God that you are not sure is for you. And if you have this inner sense that God is against you or that he's always disappointed in you, and though you might not ever admit it, but you really don't think he's all that fond of you, that he kind of really doesn't like you that much, then trying to muster up delight in him is going to be impossible for you. You'll never do it. But if you see yourself through the lens of your union with Christ, then you will see both God and yourself in a whole new light. For some people, the idea of delighting in God sounds preposterous because you're going, how can I delight in God when God is like the, this, this holy other that just seems to go around being angry all the time? Especially me. And as long as that's your view of God, you're not going to delight in Him. You won't. But our struggle is to see ourselves when we do that we see ourselves through the lens of the law. And when we put ourselves through the lens of the law, then we do have this different kind of uh, picture of, of God's view of us. Because we know we all fall short of the glory of God. We know we fall short. We know we're not enough. We know that we are failures. We know that we can't keep our promises. We know that we keep promising to change and we don't. We know we keep doing the same stupid things over and over again. We know that about ourselves. And we don't like ourselves that much, so how could God like us? And so, on and on it goes. But when we see ourselves through the lens of the gospel, then we are placed by the gospel in union with Christ. Check this out. That means that God feels about you the same exact way that he feels about his son. He feels about you the same way he feels about Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was baptized and, and the voice from heaven said what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. If you are in Christ, that's what he says about us. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I am well pleased. And we, we want to talk him out of that, right? Well, I don't think you should be so pleased. Just kind of slow down a little bit. You, you, uh, you aware of this? Oh, I'm very aware of that. Remember the promises and I didn't keep, yeah, I know all about that. But what I see is not you but you in Christ. You remember that we are sons and daughters in Christ. 
Psalm 18:19 says, He brought me out into a spacious place, and he rescued me because he delighted in me. In Zephaniah 3:17, a favorite. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He takes and he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. That one gives me chill bumps every time I read it. Because that tells me that when we come in here and we worship him, and we're singing songs to him, that he's singing back over us. Here's the great irony of the Christian life. When you live out from your acceptance and God's delight in you in Christ, then you start to change. Right? The things you think you must change about yourself in order to gain God's acceptance of you, that no longer weighs upon you. And guess what? That has a dramatic impact on your life, and it will change you. It will change you. So you're not going around going, I need to change. i got to change. Instead, you're just loved, and out of that flows just a different kind of person. You just change. Third, we need to redefine growth. Redefine growth, right? What, what, what if spiritual growth is not becoming better and better, but what if it's delighting in God more and more? What if spiritual growth is not about getting better and better as we get older and older, but, but it's more about becoming uh, a fully and more and more aware of just how much we need Him every day? But the older we get, the more we go, and I, needed, I need Him more and more. What if, what if the more mature we become, the less we hide our flaws? And the more vulnerable and open we are about our struggles and how crazy it is that God loves us anyway, right? That he has placed us in Christ in spite of ourselves. Wouldn't that be awesome? Think about it. The closer we get to God, right? The closer we get to God, what happens? The more our, our sins are, are going to become evident, Right? The brighter the light, right, the more flaws stand out. I remember as a little kid, little big kid, my, my mom had one of these makeup mirrors, and you could, like, change the lighting. Man, man they, they sold you guys a bill of goods. And so you're looking at thing, right, and it would magnify, and then you'd pff, bright light, like office light, pff, and it'd be like, oh, my goodness, I'm a monster. Right? And, and you could flip the switch and you could go to evening light and you're like going, all right. You know, because it kind of dimmed you and, and you were like going, I look so much better at night. But man, in that fluorescent light just shining on you, like I never want to work in an office, man. Good night. And, and, and so when we get closer to God who is consuming light, then all of a sudden our flaws become more evident. They become more evident to us more than anybody else. And so what if it's not going, man, I need to clean up my act, I need to clean up my act. But it's that just the realization of going, oh my goodness, I am more sinful than I ever thought I was. And God is more gracious than I could have ever imagined him to be. What if that's growth? What if that's growth? Think about it. The, uh, everything changes the closer we get to God. Brennan Manning uh, and is, is, is one of the all-time greatest books I've ever read, and uh, I've read it about three or four times now, is The Ragamuffin Gospel. And uh, Brennan Manning's home with the Lord now. But, but in the book, uh, he said this, and I just love this. He says, when I get honest... I admit that I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I am trusting and yet suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark side. 
in admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. For, God, for grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is a gift. All that is good is ours, not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. We've been given God in our souls and Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is sheer gift. It's not reward for our faithfulness or generous disposition or a heroic life of prayer. Even our fidelity is a gift. But if we turn to God, said St. Augustine, that itself is a gift of God. My deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. One last practice I want to throw out there and that's simply to live grateful. To live grateful. Nothing establish his delight like just being grateful right lasting change is is rarely done in a hurry it's it's mostly slow often it goes un, unnoticed and undetected by us we really never see ourselves grow but it seems like uh most um most growth most of us go through a similar life pattern from young and ambitious to older and content you ever notice that with people uh or maybe it's just resolved to you get to the point of going, well, it is what it is. What seems so important and urgent when you're young looks so less vital when you're older. And then you begin to see further and higher up from the, the mountain. You begin to see what truly is valuable in life and what's truly significant then you just simply become more grateful for the simple things, for the beautiful things that God has gifted you with. You simply delight in God. You, you, you see uh, that he has given us so much of what our hearts have really truly been designed to desire. When I was, when I was young, I spent my summers in, in Red River New Mexico, all summer long, year after year, and, and I rode motorcycles up in the mountains and I hiked mountain trails. And, and sometimes, when when you do that, uh, you, you think of like riding motorcycles or taking hikes up mountains is like this, but but a lot of times it, it, it's more kind of a, a longer trail. You don't really even notice that you're climbing uh, at any you know specific kind of incline and so you just kind of do it slowly and then all of a sudden right you might be hiking or, or, or on a bike and and you've been going and going and going and you don't even realize the heights that you've climbed and all of a sudden you know you're surrounded by forest and you come out on a clearing on a summit and you just go oh my goodness there's one in particular where you can look down and you can actually see the trailhead where you started. And it's so far down there, and you're going, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. Sometimes that's what God has done to us, and, and we don't even realize how far we've come until we reach kind of these summit moments, and we see. But here's the thing, man, is we don't have to wait till we're old for that to happen. Right? You don't have to wait till everything is behind you where you have to see everything in retrospect. <laughs> right? you, you can walk in awareness along the way. Right? And gratitude helps you to do that. Gratitude is just the, this, this giving thanks for all things that requires us simply to pay attention. Pay attention. We see God at work. We see him in his creation. We see his presence. We see good things that point to him because everything good is in creation is, is meant to point us to him. Let me just throw out this challenge, all right? Let me, let me end with a challenge. 
tomorrow. Tomorrow. Here's, what, here's the challenge. Try thanking God continuously throughout your day for everything. Right? You know, and it's a Monday. It's a stinking Monday. Right? Monday. How am I going to be thankful? I'm going to be in traffic. I'm going to drive to Dallas at 7 a.m. and it's going to take me an hour and a half and then I'm going to deal with my boss. And okay, Just try it. Just try it. Because here's the thing, is I guarantee you that if you will do it and you will be intentional about it, you will experience that in a whole new light. The other day I was, I was driving, I was sitting at a stop sign, it was like 155 degrees, and, and I'm looking around and I go, oh, God, I hate summer. Why, why does anybody live in Texas in the summer? Literally, literally, we're the hottest place on, uh, in America. We're hotter than, than Phoenix, Arizona. It's ridiculous. And, and I'm going, God, I'm so miserable, Lord. What? It's like he's got a, you know, a magnifying glass just burning us. And, and I'm sitting there just miserable. And I, and I look over, and, and I see this, this homeless person. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. It could be worse, you know. Could you, I can't imagine uh, trying to, to beg for money in that kind of heat. And it's, I'm just like broken for them. And I'm like, what, what a miserable world. What a miserable day. And guess what? I was miserable all stinking day long. All day. I went home and I probably said a cuss word about how hot it was. And, you know, the, get, get this dog off me. And it's just set the tone for the day. Week later, I'm taking the same route. I'm taking the same route. I said, I'm going to practice what I preach. I'm going to practice this, and and, and I go, uh, and and it's still it's 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 amazingly hot. And I'm sitting at the a red light again, same area. And I look over, and and the grass is just dried up, dead. Right? It's horrible. And yet I, I see this this little patch of green, and I see a flower blooming. And I think to myself. I think to myself, that's what I want my life to be. In, in a dry and weary land where, where it's just scorched earth, I want to be, you know, filled with just that ability to blossom in the midst of that. And I was like, thank, thank you for showing me that. Thank you for showing me that. And then I began to just look, and, and you know, you, you, birds and... and uh, I even went home and, and I heard the, the cicadas, which, which, which I call, you know, they're singing their, their demon song. I, I literally believe those things came out of the abyss. And, and yet I was like going, man, you know, it's just, it's kind of, you know, just a summer, Texas summer thing. It, it kind of is etched into my history. And I could literally thank God for that. It changes everything. It changes your whole focus, your whole attitude. Try it. Try it. One day. One day. You're sitting in traffic. You're miserable. Somebody's honking behind you. You look over and you see somebody and they're just singing. You know, they're just singing their hearts out. And, and before you'd be angry because they were singing and you're miserable. But just stop and go, man, praise God. Praise God. Look at all these people. You know, these amazing people, all these stories, all these dreams, all these, these, these beautiful people in the world that God's created. It'll change you. It'll change you. So let me summarize. Let me summarize. When I delight myself in the Lord, I find the source of my heart's greatest desire fulfilled. I don't need to use God to give me something to, to satisfy my desires because He alone is sufficient. And from that place, I am transformed at the heart level because I'm no longer chasing trivial pursuits. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for, for Jesus. I thank you for the gospel. 
I thank you, Father, that in Christ that, that we are loved beyond imagination. Anything that we could possibly fathom. Father, we have such a hard time with that because, because we don't particularly like ourselves a lot of the time. We know ourselves. We know ourselves uh, better than any other person. We know our flaws. We know our failures. We know our, our, our evil thoughts that lurk behind our smiles. We know our hypocrisies. We know it all. And we know that you know it. And therefore, we basically walk around in shame. But God, you, you have told us in your word that in Christ, because of our faith in Christ, that we have been united with him to such an extent that, that when you see us, you see all of those thoughts the way Christ would have thought them. And all of those hidden things are brought into the light the way Christ would have lived them if he were us. And all of the sins we've ever committed are, are as removed from us as far as the east is to the west and all that remains is the righteousness of Christ. That's what you see. It's not what we see, it's what you see. Help us to see what you see. And then make that, that reality bring radical, amazing change in us. The change we really long for. Free us from this treadmill. The Christian faith is not a treadmill. No, we've been sold a bill of goods. But help us, Father, be set free from the gospel, with the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We have a, a time.